When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. the southernmost point of dawn to the lands of always winter and what is west of west and the shadows in the east this is casterly talk i'm ken knapsack and we are going to start dancing it's a prelude to a dance here on casterly talk episode 60 joining me today is sir thomas the tall thomas rizzling hello my friend welcome to the show Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me back, man. We get to talk dance. We're moving into some fun things here. Yeah, this is going to be great. I have been looking forward to this, even though slightly overwhelmed, slightly afraid, and got a little too busy this week and didn't do all the pre-reading, didn't do all my homework. Um, uh, but it's going to be okay. And for those who are watching live on Facebook, I'm doing a, a multi-stream test today. Uh, we're going live on my Facebook page, Ken Napsock, uh, and uh, that's me. That's the page. That's uh, I, I could have named it something else. We actually we do have a Casterly Talk page, but like you can't connect to that. Uh, it's a complication of streaming. We're also live on YouTube. So a shout out to all of those watching live right now. But first and foremost, Casually Talk is a audio podcast. And we are available on Anchor, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all the podcast places. We've been going for a couple years now. And even though HBO's Game of Thrones wrapped, we are here talking about A World of Ice and Fire, A Song of Ice and Fire, and this wonderful book, uh, Fire and Blood, Volume 1, which we know is going to fuel a lot of HBO's next show, Thomas, The House of the Dragon, which is why we're taking a look at the dance today. Are you ready for this, my friend? I am, man. In a way, I'm ready to dance. Oh, oh, like a couple of white guys at a (laughs) wedding. Get the overbite going here. Uh, And, uh, yeah, one thing we want to discuss here. First of all, I I, I have a... I had a, a curtain switch out mishap, Thomas. Um, I, you know, I got the other angle. I got the two two camera angles. If if I want it here, I'll bring up the other one. Um, if, for those watching, it's it's okay, it's okay. But the, I, I I ordered a curtain and I mismeasured it. This is my bad. This is my bad. Uh, and now I have no curtain while I'm waiting for the other curtain to show up. <laughs> Don't it's get rid of your curtain. I put myself in. Yeah, I had a high water curtain as I was talking about in the afternoons. Uh, so uh, a lot of people like Alden Diaz, Christy McGee, Ball Drop McGee, we sometimes call her, Brandon Bell. Uh, we have Robin in here, Ed Harrell, Eddie Haskell, as you sometimes known. And like I said, we're uh, watching on YouTube. Eric Lane is checking in on Facebook as well. I'm I'm doing this test. Uh, we got Christian. Uh, uh, is that Christian underscore seven here? I think it is, or at least a Christian with a K, but not the Harloff one. Uh, I've got all destinations uh, plugged in. 
as I do this kind of multi-stream experiment, but I'm not going to let it get distract, uh, let it distract me much more. All right. So, uh, Thomas, we, and I'll be honest, I've intentionally, 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 don't drop the eye, not dug too deep into what House of the Dragon will end up being on HBO. I kind of want to just let it flow. We are a ways away. Just want to let it flow, and I love dancing in the waters of, as we say on Force Center, speculating responsibly. But, Thomas, we do know the show will be coming from these pages, Fire and Blood, right? We do. Yeah, that's that's the one thing we can be certain of, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, correction, Rob is watching. I said Robin. I looked at that wrong. But Rob is here. Um, yeah, so uh, that's why we're dan- uh, dancing with this book here. And, Thomas, you and I both love this book. Uh, Andres loves this book. Rachel loves this book. Uh, everyone's uh, uh, on the show. Very, we, we, we're so book-friendly here today. Uh, first thing I'll start to uh, – well, I keep saying first thing. Um, doing a lot of qualifiers today live here, Thomas. Uh, the, the, there's so many shows out there that dive in for hours, and I listen to them, and I love them. History of Westeros, Alt-Shift-X. There's a lot of the uh, Bay's Battles, Looks at the Battles. I love all those, and I always recommend them and always shout them out because I want you to dive fully into uh, Game of Thrones, World of Ice and Fire, Song of Ice and Fire discussion. It's just it's just best to have a robust look at all of them. Uh, I, I don't dig as super deep into these books as, as, as I'd want to, but as, uh, say, I do Star Wars. So that's how we are approaching this look at the dance, the Targaryen civil war that really affected a lot of things and was also a precursor of uh, moments in history that were still to come, uh, which is part of the fun that George does. So that's why one of the reasons you're here, Thomas, I've enlisted you because you have written a great book report about this book, right? I, I did my best. Yeah. You know, we're, we're covering a lot of years here and, and to break down the dance, you have to break down not only the, the two years of the dance, but yes. the 60 years prior, because without that, it's only kind of half a picture. Yeah. And you said, to be clear, 60 years prior. We're not talking a while. In fact, reading from the pages of the book, uh, was it uh, Archmaster Gildane wrote the book, right? Or, or wrote it uh, or set, spoke the book to George R. R. Martin as the uh, front of the book, will have you believe. Uh, and I believe it. I believe it. I believe George sits down with uh, imaginary friends and gets all this information. Uh, he did uh, that the seeds of war are off the planet during times of peace, so it has been in Westeros. The bloody struggle for the Iron Throne, known as the Dance of the Dragons, fought from 129 to 131 AC, that's after conquest, had its roots about a half a century earlier, which is why we're diving in here. And we, again, we... We talk about the House of the Dragon. We really do think this is the best bet for what the show might be centered around, this particular Targaryen Civil War, right, Thomas? Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of brushed on it last week, and, and it does share the most similarities with the story of A Song of Ice and Fire right down to a, you know, a queen desperately trying to keep her, her son on the throne right. and then another son, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, it shares a lot of similarities, and that, to me, is kind of what they're aiming for, is something we're, we're used to, right? Yeah, and, and the, again, this idea of uh, just a little bit of history repeating, like you, you, you definitely need to go back to go forward. It's something that comes up a lot in Game of Thrones. It's literally something said to to Daenerys, right? Uh, or paraphrasing there a little bit on on the on uh, on uh, the prophecy uh, uh, that was uh, said to her. So. 
by Quaith. So uh, let's start diving in here. We have a lot. And, and the first part of the show today uh, will be about the dance and start looking. And, and this is a prelude to the dance. And then soon, Thomas, this is going to lead into a bigger discussion on the greens and the blacks and what that means. And then that will kind of transition more into the actual war, the Targaryen Civil War that just absolutely dominated this part uh, of history in Westeros. So uh, you, you, you start taking us through here, describing what it is, uh, what, we're, what we're about to look at here, Thomas. Sure. So, I mean, like you said, to, to do this effectively, we got to go back 60 years plus and, and go back to when Jaehaerys I, the, the old king, the conciliator, uh, mm. began his reign in 55 AC. Um, they had him and his wife, Queen Alessandra, had many children and yeah. many of them perished young. And that's kind of what led us to this overall issue of succession that mm. that laid laid the footwork for the uh, the groundwork, per se, for the dance itself. Run through, run through those kids. Run through those kids. Um, Let's do that. And, and, and actually, sure, should we maybe even take a, a moment to talk about Jaharis the first? Uh, yeah. Perhaps, perhaps we don't know what Rhaegar would have been as a Targaryen uh, a ruler, but perhaps the best of the Targaryens. Not a big stretch to say that. Yeah, I think certainly as far as the Targaryen king, certainly the finest yeah. character uh, morally um, and also probably the most successful king. His his reign was the most prosperous that Westeros had ever seen. And afterwards, it would begin to plunge into decades and, and centuries of chaos that it would mm. really never come out of. Right. Yeah, I, I think directly slash indirectly leads all the way to the fall in a way because at the end of this we're, i'm spoiling the end but when the when the civil war ends a little less dragons a little less power a little less the small folk kind of like what's going yeah. on with these targaryens above us man yeah even even leading into the dance we see uh, such a dramatic reduction in the targaryen line of succession that by the time we begin the dance it's already uh, a real serious threat that there mm. may not be those heirs to continue yeah. much further if things don't go their way so take me through um, take me through those heirs a little bit. Let's do that. So from youngest to oldest, we have uh, Prince Aegon, who was born prematurely in 52 AC and passed away only three days later. That's oh, a very common theme in this story. <laughs> yeah. um, Princess Daenerys was born in 53 and succumbed to the shivers during the winter of uh, 59 to 60 AC at only six. There's the second. Uh, Prince Aemon was born in 55 and his brother, Prince Balon, in 57. Uh, the two had a very close relationship, despite the former being named Prince of Dragonstone by their father at seven, mm. um, which, you know, in, in previous stories and stories afterwards, that was very much a bone of contention between princes. Right. Um, we then have Princess Alyssa, born during the same winter that her sister Daenerys died in uh, at 60 AC. We have uh, Princess, I can never pronounce this name right. So someone. I, I'm going, me. I go Miguel. <laughs> that's that's the same way i'm going Miguel. so uh i take that from Megar. so yeah m uh, was yeah. m-a-e-g-e-l-l-e thanks george thanks george yeah. <laughs> i'm almost tempted to pronounce it magel but i gotta stop myself from doing that uh yep. so Megel was born in 62 ac uh then prince vagon in 63 dayla in 64 yep. sarah in 67 viscera in 71 and three more to come throughout the next few years are they the and the rest of the family <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And the rest here <laughs> on Dragonstone. Yep. We'd be bouncing around too much if we were just trying to fit in all the, the stories of their children alone. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. All right. So you got the kids, like I said, a lot of death in here, uh, you know, which which is 
which is uh, George's want at the time and telling his history, but also makes sense. He's drawn upon uh, our real world history and, you know, lifespans a little tougher, a little tougher back in the day. So uh, when you're living and, and, and eating and drinking and living in castles. So uh, this is where, why do you feel this is, uh, why is it important with these deaths uh, in the family and, and uh, the kind of, the, is, it, is it just simply is this more of a pure line is, is here? So I think the, we talked about the issue of succession leading into the dance. And I think um, although none of these people are directly themselves tied to that fight for succession, which would come in 101 AC, um, their children are. And, and to describe how this succession got so bungled up, we have to talk about how many of the 13 children of Jaharis and Alisan passed before they could even be given the chance to be given successionship. Right. That's again, that's just a simple, straight thing. And when, when and Jaharis goes for so long and, uh, you know, this is this is again going to looking at uh, what we saw in the show. You know, this is why it was they're just so uh, secession is important, uh, not just for a Brian Cox led HBO show. It's important. And, and that's why they were they were kind of a lot of conversations around Daenerys in, in, in uh, Game of Thrones season seven and eight about what happens after. Great. You take over. Yeah. What will we do that? Exactly. And every time we're facing in, in this this fictional history, every time we're facing uncertainty, there is almost always a fight over successionship. Mm. It's it's almost always the center of every Targaryen quarrel for virtually 300 years. Yeah, they all they all really want to know who who's yeah. in charge after. Uh, but it's important look at it. Hey, it's important for Baratheons, Stannis, yeah. Renly, everything there. All right, great. Keep going here. And what, and what do you got here? Where do we go next from here in the setup and the prelude to the dance? So from here, we, we jump forward um, to 72 AC, uh, where, where you know, the two princes, Amon and Balon, um, at, at a 15-year-old Prince Balon is knighted, and shortly thereafter claims the famous dragon Vagar, uh, written by um, Aegon's sister wife. Can't believe I'm blanking on this name right now. Visenya. Yeah, thank you. Don't. <laughs> um, shortly thereafter, don't, you know, seventeen. There, sorry. There, sorry, there's been times I've been like, you know, the, the guy that dies, dies in season one, Teddy? Yeah, Teddy ball game way too often, way more often than I'm willing to admit. <laughs> There's just so many between Star Wars, this Gilligan's Island. There's so many names in my head. Sometimes they all just like sometimes like that old Simpsons joke of, of the viruses and Mr. Burns who they can't get through the door. They're all stuck. That's that's what happens yep. sometimes. <laughs> so from there, um, his his brother, uh, two year two year old. Uh, two, wow. Mm-hmm. Stumbling. Two, two years older, at 17 years old, Prince Amon would claim Caraxes, mm. and he too would become a dragon rider. These details are really tiny, yeah. uh, but do come into play later down the line at a very key moment during the dance. So I thought it was important to just present them here, and then we can come back to that later down the line, I think, if that's okay. Yeah, well, what do we want to discuss the little details, or just want to tease, sure, them, tease sure. them and come back? You can at least uh, we can explain what the details are. Yeah, so so both Caraxes and Vagar, the two dragons claimed by Amon and Balon, uh, would be ridden by members of their extended family eventually at the Battle Above the God's Eye in 130 AC, which is a pivotal moment during the dance. Yeah, and uh, a battle that you know when you're reading it, you're like, oh, I wouldn't mind seeing this on my uh, pay TV screen. Oh yeah, especially that final that final image. So uh, moving from there, we move into 73 AC, and we have another death of one of the 13 children. Prince Gaemon Targaryen is born uh, premature, sickly, and small, dying only three months after his birth. Um, at this point, they also give away uh, another potential heir in Miguel, 
as she's promised to the faith of the seven at age 10 as kind of a thanks to the to the mother or uh yeah to the mother for blessing them with many children many of these children would go on to die so yeah. that thanks is kind of misplaced but hey yeah right? well hey guess what i got news for you pack up your bags you're gonna yeah. go live in a church <laughs> why hey we, we're just saying thanks for something Send a fruit basket. At that, point, at that point, we get another key succession character introduced here in 74 AC. Uh, Prince Amon, the son of Jaehaerys Nalasan, has his first daughter, Rhaenys. Um, again, an, an important introduction because when we get to that year 101 AC and the fight for succession really begins, uh, she is very much at the center of that along with her husband and son. Mm-hmm. And she's got some Baratheon blood in her. She totally does, yeah. Not not to mention um, later on marrying into uh, House Valerian, which is another ancient house of, of Valeria, right? So, right, and House Valerian is one of those houses that a lot of people, I think, want to want to see explored a little bit more on the big screen here, or the or the yeah, yeah the littler screen. Yeah, especially Corliss. He's a, a yes. very interesting character. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And and in that. Um, Following that, three years later, uh, Queen Alison was left bedridden for nearly half a year after giving birth to Prince Valerian Targaryen, who was born in a very similar state to Gaemon, who died four years earlier. Uh, in the same year, uh, her son, Prince Balon, and his wife, Alyssa, have their first son, Viserys I, who goes on to be crowned king in 101 AC during that fight for succession. Yeah, so there you go, right here. Important, important birthday. Put a pin in it. Yep. And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of sad, but we, we continue into this loss of succession ship at that point, uh, Prince Valerian passes away only a fortnight prior to his first birthday. Uh, and Prince Vagon leaves to become a maester at the Citadel in Old Town, um, yeah. later. Sorry, go, go on. No, no. So yeah. And that, which is, uh, I love that. One of my little favorite, uh, little side stories. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting later on going later, going on to become a, an archmaester. It's just, it's hilarious how many of their kids, they're kind of were like, sure, take this one. We've got an heir and a spare, I think is the line they use in Fire and Blood. Yep. Yep. Right. You know, it's good. Heir and spare. Yep. Build up so their, their last child is born in 80 AC, uh, Gail Targaryen, uh, Princess Gail Targaryen, born to Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne. Uh, again, their last child. And following that, we get the birth of the rogue prince, Daemon Targaryen, a very popular character in the story of the dance and the years prior to. Okay. And he's born to Prince Balon and Lady Alyssa. All right. So where does this, uh, we are still many, many years, uh, many, many years of uh, away from uh, the dance. So where do you, where on the time, why do you think feel so far, where, where, where are we on the timeline in terms of importance to building up towards, towards this, you think? So we, we have now cut away half of the potential heirs to the throne of King Jaehaerys the first. His two primary heirs, or sorry, his primary heir in Amon, the Prince of Dragonstone, being alive and well, with now a son of his own. So that son would then go on to inherit the throne if if uh, inheritance was followed correctly as as it was normally done. Okay. Um, shortly thereafter, they'd lose another uh, sister, Princess Dela, um, who would die shortly after giving birth to Emma Aaron. Uh, Emma Aaron becomes the first wife of Jaehaerys the first, or sorry, of uh, Viserys the first, and upon her death is really the instigation of what would become the Blacks and the Greens and the the Dance of the Dragons. That's really the the moment that pushes everything forward. Um, and and why and why why do you feel that? What 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 uh, what, is, what can we draw from that? 
So Emma Aaron passes away, um, leaving a hole uh, for the king. The king not only has no male heirs, at, the, at that point he only had one female heir, uh, Rain- Rhaenyras. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, one second, just lost, lost my point in the notes here. <laughs> <laughs> so, like we said, we had to reread everything coming in. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, believe me, I've been, I've been like going through these wonderful words just... Uh, Last uh, this morning over breakfast, while also trying to manage my MLB the Show team, it's a, it's we're at the All Star break. It's an important it's an important week for me. So yeah, Viserys at this point was left without a wife and without a male heir. Um, the the nobles at court very much pushed him to remarry, and within a year he did. Uh, he remarried uh, Alicent Hightower, who would go on to become the Green Queen, um, right. and that's. Her, the divide between her and Viserys's only daughter, and at that point heir, uh, Rhaenyra's, would become the the beginnings of the Blacks and the Greens. Rhaenyra's becoming the Black, and and uh, Alicent becoming the Green. Right. Which, uh, yeah, going to be next week. We'll talk, or, or the next episode we dive into this, I should say, um, hopefully next week, uh, yep. uh, about the importance of that and and why we always hear about that. Yeah. All right. Um, and then uh, uh, I know uh, there, uh, Rob in chat was talking about a, a character, uh, Sarah. Uh, you mentioned a little yep. bit, but very interesting story there. That's kind of what's coming next. Very, right? Yeah. So uh, so Sarah flees, um, you know, without without getting into some of the, the less savory details. She's essentially sent to Old Town and given to the faith as punishment mm-hmm. um, after being caught fornicating with all three of her male favorites is what they call them in the books. How dare Um, she? How dare she enjoy herself as a young lady? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, A year and a half later, she fled Old Town for lease and later Volantis by then becoming well-known and wealthy. And after that, it was said that her parents kind of began to fracture. They were, you know, the the stoic king queen began to become a little less stoic from there forward. And Sarah becomes um, kind of almost like an outlaw queen. Yeah. In a sense, when the, when they go to summon her at this this great council in 101 AC during the question of succession, uh, she just says, "No, I'm good. I have I have my empire here." Or a similar a similar quote, and that story fascinates me. She also sends uh, or has four bastards appear to try and claim the throne when uh, <laughs> when that question of succession does arise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, there's a lot there, which is again why, and we could talk a little bit about. About this this book itself, Volume One here, Fire and Blood. Um, it's not for necessarily for everyone. Even if you love uh, Game of Thrones or, or Song of Ice and Fire, you get so much history in a Song of Ice and Fire, and, and you get to learn a lot, especially about Robert's Rebellion and the Conquest and all the big things. I just love that uh, I, th- this just reads it reads faster for me than a lot of uh, other Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire books. Uh, I don't I don't know if you feel that too, Thomas, but it just kind of moves faster. And then I love the little side things; just could be their own stories. And in fact, George has written a lot about you know side stories here uh, in other little properties too. So I don't know. That's why I love this book. The stuff you're talking about with Sarah going over Volantis and just that whole thing opens up, and you you could just follow that thread for a long time. There are so many small stories within this small story um, that are extraordinarily fascinating. Sarah's being one of the primary ones and Vagon's being, I think, my second favorite. Yeah, yeah, a a Targaryen leaving leaving that chance to become a maester is a fascinating story. So very, very fascinating. Yeah. 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 Uh, And as Rob points out in chat, Sarah's first word was no. (laughs) That says a lot about the character uh shout out to spud murphy a lot of people chatting in uh um the chat about the the show about house of the dragon and what about what it could be again we're just 
while running through some history about what possibly could fuel the center of the show. All right, back on track here, Thomas. We're 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 getting closer to the dance. There's still a lot going on. So it's it's funny. We're we're now edging up to the the moment I initially started this outline with, and then realized we couldn't start there. Um, Oh, I just want to make sure we're not missing anything. So the only the only thing really in between here is that in '87, Rainey's the daughter of um, uh, oh wow, yeah, of Damon, Um, Prince Damon, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Is is uh, it mounts her dragon Maylies and becomes a dragon rider herself. This would kind of further her um, want for succession. It was she had some people backing her after that. You know, becoming a dragon rider mm. amongst Targaryens was a, a very favor earning thing. That's probably a terrible way to say that, but sure, it <laughs> we'll makes sense like to that. me. Favor earning. I like I like yeah. to be a favor <laughs> earner, and you should too. Aspire to be a fam- favor earner. So one one more of of Jaceris and Al- Alisan's children die in between here, and that's Princess Vicera, who died at fifteen after uh, basically an accident on horseback, being thrown from her saddle into a wall and breaking her neck. Oh, yeah. So distraught after after losing three children in such close proximity, Queen Alisan wanted to bring Sarah home, and and the king was having no part of that. He called his daughter Elysine whore, and this kind of kicked off the first uh, the first quarrel or the great rift as we know it. Yep. Um, the queen refused to accompany the king on his progress through the Westerlands and returned to Dragonstone. Uh, they wouldn't see each other again for three years. This is important because the second quarrel is all about succession of the throne and specifically who succeeds Jaehaerys. Right. So um, in 90 AC, and again, we go back talking about Corlys Valerian. At 16, Princess Rhaenys would marry Corlys Valerian of her own volition with her father and grandfather's blessing. Um, so again, a, a, an interesting small story beat in, an, in a larger story. We're, we're not seeing a 16-year-old given. We're yeah. seeing a 16-year-old who, who is, you know fallen for a man and believes this to be the right match. And that I also found that interesting, whether you trust the judgment of a 16-year-old to do that or not, I don't know. But yeah. But it's something that's uh, different, different in this story. Like you said, yeah, choosing, having the cho- having the power of choice here. Very much so. Um, so in in ninety two, this is really where things kick off. Is in ninety two AC. This is where we start to lose the main heirs. Um, yeah. So after after pirates who were driven away by the Archon of Tirush after the Murish bloodbath invade the eastern half of Tarth, Prince Amon valiantly decided to lead an assault on the pirates and arrived well before his son in law Corlys Valerian. After arriving, Prince Amon met with Lord Cameron Tarth to assess the situation and was struck in the throat by a pair of uh, Mirish scouts who uh, fired crossbow at Lord Cameron and struck accidentally Prince Amon. Uh, the Prince of Dragonstone, heir to the Iron Throne, was now dead. Uh, and I, that, yeah. Sorry, yeah. continue. Yeah. No, yeah, that, that that exploded succession right there. That's the beginning of the the issue of succession. And the, and it, and it's one of those things I I, I wanted to highlight. It just uh, I I take a lot of these things in Star Wars too. I take them emotion first, right? And yeah. I, I I was so in Aemon Targaryen. I remember this this Prince Aemon was just um, just when I was like I was kind of rooting for him for some reason. Just yeah. like and then when that it it happens, thwack, you almost hear it. And I had one of those like, well, that's not going to go well <laughs> type of vibes. And, and that's why, again, I don't just see Fire and Blood as this unimportant side project. I, I really do think it part it's part of the story. A lot of the stuff, yeah. again, tells the future and everything. But, but you can get invested in just these these names, these characters, and there's so many stories in here. Yeah, I completely agree. And there's 
but you know, like we said, these side stories are kind of what keep me going. I think if Fire and Blood was just kind of a monotonous history of this person was born and then this person died, it would be very dry. Right. Yeah. yeah. So continuing in 92 AC, uh, as Amon's only child was his daughter Rainey's, um, this just exploded the issue of succession. King Jaehaerys then enraged his wife. This began the second quarrel. Um, after passing over his granddaughter, Rainey's, who was then pregnant with an unborn child, um, mm. he instead chose Prince Balon, which, you know, again, historically is is not a, a bad move, but only over Rainey's because of gender. Um, and, and I think that's very telling. And, and going forward, that becomes a repeated, a repeated move as it was in the past. Um, yeah. And again, this triggers the second estrangement between the, the king and the queen that lasted for two more years. Which is which is saying a lot because again, especially when you read the beginning of Jaharis and Allison's uh, Allison's reign, like they're it, they're like the sweethearts, man. You're you're. Oh, I totally. talk about rooting for them, like yeah. you're really in their corner, and it starts to break your heart when they're just like for good reason. You know, the, some of these riffs, I understood them, especially from her point of view. But it it you feel it, you feel it, and you feel that the nation feels it, the world feels it, the, the, the seven kingdoms feel it when yeah. this king and queen uh, are apart. I think, you know, like we uh, human beings have an attachment to the story of a mother losing a child. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're, we're talking about a mother that essentially goes on to lose 12 before she passes. And right. and that, again, you know, a small story that is just tragically heartbreaking. And, and you want to know more. Right. She's she's a character. I feel like we I could have a whole book on Queen on Queen Alice and it probably wouldn't fill in the blanks for me. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean the 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 processions, the tours around the world, up going to the wall, all that kind of stuff. It's she's a real fascinating character. Yeah, I don't, I don't. Would you, would you mind if I read this this quote from her? Please the, do. That I pulled out here. Please yeah, do. So, so during this this meeting between the king and the queen, when he denied Rainey's successionship, the queen famously said, "A ruler needs a good head and a true heart. A cock is not essential." If your grace truly believes that women lack the wit to rule, plainly you have no further need of me. She then departed for King's Landing on Dragonback. I, I, I <laughs> see. I don't know. You know. Again, there's this 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 book, Fire Blood. It's what about a, I'm roughly 150 years in the the next volume. Yeah. So the show, you got a lot of you got a lot of places to choose from if they're gonna. I would love to see this on screen. I'm just like, you got no further need of me. And dragon flies off. It could be actually an interesting, like, you know, oddly enough, it could actually be an interesting cold open. Yeah. To to open with the the scene of the first real discussion of the issue of successionship. Um, yeah, if, yeah. You know, that creates a mess. But Yeah, we talked a little bit with Rachel last week on the, if you can do the kind of the Lord of the Rings, the world has changed kind of prologue. Uh, would it be the conquest? Would, what, you know, speaking to a general TV audience. Yeah. Um, not uh, people who are going to go dive in deep, uh, like History of Westeros podcast uh, show fans, those who like to crack open a beer like us and just kind of take this in as it comes along with some details, uh, important details as you go, uh, are casual fans. So casual fans might need some context. Where do you go if, if you set up the show? How much do you get? Because I, I, thought, I thought Game of Thrones, especially that first season, though confused for some people, Tom, it's like, you know, you always hear the jokes about I couldn't track who's who and who's who. Yeah, that, that's fine. It gets the history and the feeling of the world out pretty good. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially Whether you track the characters or not, the, the feel of the show and the world is very much ingrained, even by the end of the first episode, I'd say. Right. In the first, you know, the first hundred pages of the book. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. All right, continue, sir. Sorry, great, uh, great quote. Great quote. As Christy McGee says, that was quite a mic drop. Any mic drop that ends with you flying away on the wings of a dragon, <laughs> on the wings of a dragon. That's great. <laughs> Was that playing this morning on the radio show? Uh, might have been. It needs to be. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being up early and listening to my work over on WLDJ in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Absolutely enjoyed it. Go check that out. So uh, the, the new Prince of Dragonstone at this time, being named by his father, Balon Targaryen, then led a successful retort on the Mirish pirates who invaded Tarth and killed his brother, returning as a hero and, you yeah. know, kind of gaining some additional fame as now the only... Uh, potential male heir um, left, really. Right. He's campaigning and, pretty well at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was pretty uncontested. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in a year later, Queen Alison would fly her dragon for the last time shortly thereafter she broke her hip and was on uh, on a cane for the rest of her life. So again, we're seeing the deterioration of the, the good queen. Right. Um, and Silverwing wouldn't be claimed again until Ulf the White again in the Dance of the Dragons in 2129. So this is, you know, we kind of see a a consistent thing with these dragons here. Every time they disappear, they're popping up in very important situations. Uh, Princess Rhaenys in the same year in 93 AC gives birth to her first child, a daughter, uh, Lena Valerian, uh, fathered by Corlys Valerian, who we discussed earlier. Uh, And in the same year, Viserys I, who would go on to become king, marries his cousin, his first wife, Emma Arryn, which we also discussed earlier. Sure, sounds Um, good. Works for me. Yeah. They'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd go on to have uh, have three children. One died unnamed in infancy, uh, Rhaenyra, born in um, 97, and Balon, who would yeah. die uh, a day after the birth that claimed his mother, Emma, and then launched the issue of the Blacks and the Greens. Yeah. Um, another key thing that happened in 93 AC was the fact that Viserys I mounted and claimed Valerian the Black Dread. And, th- um, yeah, this, if, this is the... Balerian the Black Dread. Yeah, the the Balerian the Black Dread, over 120 years old, yeah. uh, ridden by Aegon the Conqueror, uh, solidified the Seven Kingdoms, yeah. melted the swords for the Iron Throne. This is a, a huge moment that, again, a, a favor-gaining moment yeah. at court for him, right? This is like, uh, you know, Michael Jordan turns to you and says, you know, come join me on a, on a, on a court for a two-on-two contest. I still got it. Yep. You can play with me. Yep, exactly. Except if Michael Jordan was the size of a skyscraper. <laughs> That too. <laughs> so uh, the, a year later, the, the king and queen reconciled after that second rift again with the help of their daughter, Septima Magell. Right. Um, Magell, I did it again, Miguel. Yep. Um, Valerian, sadly, less than one year after being claimed by Viserys I, dies of old age, which is a, a very rare thing amongst the dragons of the Targaryens. They all seem to kind of die in a fiery blaze. Yeah. So it, for me, is kind of nice that Valerian has this relatively peaceful end i feel like there's some poetry in that yeah i like that um moving onward uh, viserys would never again bond with another dragon that was it for him uh and in 94 rainies would give birth to a second child a son lanor valerian this again further complicating matters of succession for those who supported rainies after queen alisan put her forward in 92 ac upon the death of amon um 96 AC, another one of uh, Jaehaerys and Alessand's children dies in Septa Miguel. Uh, she contracts grayscale while treating children with the disease and passes away shortly thereafter. No Samuel Tarley to save her, huh? No, no unfortunately not. not. She's she's no Jorah Mormont in this situation. Yeah. All right. We are now at this point, we're, we're, Thomas, we're, we're roughly, what, 35 years 
before the actual yeah. uh, dance here. So we're getting yep. close. But you can see, again, all this starts building upon itself. Uh, riffs. People, uh, you know, people being jumped over, girls being jumped over when they should have been the rule. Uh, a lot of airs going different places. Rifle airs dying. The pressure is building whether they see it or not. Yeah, and it all comes to a head in 101. So we're we're almost there. We're getting almost. so close. Yeah. <laughs> so 97 so, uh, AC, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's that's pretty much it for 97 AC, aside from the fact that Damon Targaryen, the Road Prince, is married off by the queen to Rhea Royce, the heir to Runestone. Damon despised the Vale, uh, was very wordy about how much he despised the Vale. He even had some choice nicknames for his uh, his new wife. Um, quickly began to hate his surroundings and his wife. Um, eh, that's a good yeah. Game of Thrones. Uh, that's a good Game of Thrones uh, trait. Your it surroundings is, is. and your partner not liking them. Yeah. Very uh, repeated. Alden Diaz in chat says, "Pour one out for Balerion tonight, folks. A good boy <laughs> to the end. Right to the end. <laughs> Rob agrees. A good is good. All right." <laughs> So uh, and and this uh, is another important moment here in the succession issue and leading into the dance because this is kind of the first moment that began to build resentment between Damon and the Crown and the Crown being kind of a a whole figure here because later in his life he starts to just kind of treat anybody who is the Crown with mm. the same level of disdain. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, a mistaken marriage necessary maybe by the Queen, you know, is, is, yeah. send her off. Yeah, those little things, the little butterfly wings, kind of, can, can yeah, you know maybe thinking only about the person to person match and not so much the locale that, right. You know, she's sentencing Damon to essentially for the rest of his life. Right. Um, so I, I had to stick this in here. I'm a big fan of Septon Barth, uh, in yep. 98 AC Septon Barth passes away peacefully in his sleep after serving as Jaharis's hand for 41 years. Well, it's not just a small note. It's it's not a small note. I'm, I'm not saying this is an exact indicator for what came in the show, but it's like when, when Targaryens start losing their advisors and friends, you know, things, bad things can happen. 41 years is a long time as a hand of the king, especially with such a popular and prosperous king. That that does mean, that does mean something. Yeah, and I, I could be wrong. I didn't fact check this. I probably should have. But I think that is the longest um, tenure as hand of the king for any hand. That makes, uh, you know, that, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely beat Ned by a few years. So, so right after that, after Septon Barth passes away, this vacates the position of Hand of the King, and none other than Prince Balon uh, is named the new Hand. Um, shortly thereafter, another tragedy would befall uh, King Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne with the disappearance and then death of their youngest daughter, Gail Targaryen, who disappeared from court in King's Landing at 18. This is where fire and blood did so many wonderful things for me Yeah, because they tell you at one point, you know, they announced that she had died of a fever sometime during the summer. Um, or sorry, actually I think they said that she died of a summer fever and it's not more about the time, but regardless, um, <coughs> sorry, caught myself coughing. It's all right. Uh, so the King and Queen announced that she had died of a fever during the summer. And, and later, you know, I think about 15 pages after, uh, we learned that, um, it would come to light shortly thereafter that she was seduced and abandoned by a traveling singer um, and had given birth to a stillborn son, a tragedy that was very familiar to not only the Targaryens, but to her mother. Um, and traumatized by this, she drowned herself in Blackwater Bay. Again, yeah. another tragedy befalls not just King Jaehaerys, but also his wife, Queen Alicent. And after losing so many children prior to this, Queen Alicent never recovered from this loss. This was the loss that broke her. Yeah. Absolutely. And stay away from those traveling men, traveling around. Yeah. I got to watch myself. I've, I've lost my notes twice in this, the, the stupid, uh, 
what do you call these, these magic mouses? I picked one of these up and I'm flying up the page now. Ooh, <laughs> sounds good. So, uh, moving forward into hundred, hundred AC, right before we get into the meat of the succession ship issue here. Yeah. Um, Queen Alisan kind of tired of the red keep and all of the trouble and pain it had caused her left to Dragonstone. And it is here that the good queen of 52 years passed away mere months after her youngest daughter, which again, we talk about tragedy and George R. R. Martin being so good at tragedy. Yeah. Oh, that just hurts to even read. So this is a 100 AC, which means we're, we're getting so close to some of the events that start to really uh, break things. And she's gone. She's not part of that. And like I said, the good queen is gone. Those are little key details. And if she had, if she had been here for this next part, I think it would have probably gone differently. So in, in 101 AC, a few key details happen. Um, Prince Balon complains of a pain in his side while he's out hunting and his condition quickly worsens upon returning. And after only five days, he dies. Uh, I think the diagnosis is a burst stomach or burst belly. Um, and once again, only further confusing the issue of succession. King Jaehaerys at this point, not knowing what to do, calls his son Vagon back from Old Town at this point. He is Archmaester Vagon. Right. Um, in, in Fire and Blood, we're told that some say this was to offer his son the throne, which he swiftly declined, whilst others say he was only seeking um, his wise counsel, the, the wise counsel of an Archmaester. Mm-hmm. Um, but Vagon did suggest to his father that the king call a great council meeting. And at this great council meeting is really where this story kicks off. This is everything up until this point has only been to set the stage for this meeting, this council meeting. Okay. So we've got, we've got, let me take it back. You got, what do you got? You got some 30, 30, almost 40 years. Pretty well 45. Yeah. Of 45 years to get to this point. And and we're, uh, you know, there's a reason for that, but you can just see where it stretches. And, And in, in, uh, you know, a story like this, these characters, as you can see in uh, HBO's Game of Thrones, like if if you watch that, it's like these connections, these these uh, bruised egos, they, they run deep, they stay long, and uh, sometimes they never really go away. Yeah, and I mean, there's never better shown than in Daemon, right? right. Daemon carries every issue he has for as long as he's around, <laughs> and we never forget them. Yeah, yeah. So following uh, Vagar's advice, the king called for a great council of all the great and lesser lords, the maesters of the citadel, and all the septons and septas to be assembled at Harrenhal. Yeah. And during these deliberations, 14 potential heirs would be put forward. Um, and again, we have Archmaester Vagon, the last living son of the king, who refused yeah. to press his claim. We have Daemon, grandson of the king, who chose to support his brother Viserys's claim. Uh, as it would make him the new prince of Dragonstone. So some wise thinking there, knowing he couldn't win. Yes. Uh, Lena Valerion, uh, the first first child of Rhaenys and great-granddaughter of the king, the the favored heir by Queen Alysanne, mm-hmm. was ignored because of her gender, just like her mother, twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lainor Valerion, uh, her brother and Rhaenys' son, great-grandson of the king, uh, would eventually be one of the only two to actually be kind of considered in the running along with Viserys and would lose the election to Viserys. Um, Princess Rhaenys Targaryen, again, their mother and the favorite heir of Queen Alicent, ignored because of her gender. Uh, if we get back to Princess Sarah, who, you know, this is that quote where she said, I have my own kingdom here. I don't want to come back to Westeros and take yours. I'm good. 
I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably good not paying taxes, doing doing yeah. her own thing, taking money instead of giving it away. <laughs> not, not, my, my gender's not uh, being held against me here. I've got a kingdom, a queendom, whatever. I got whatever I want to call it. I agree. With exactly. That. I like that story of her almost being kind of like the urchin queen mm-hmm. in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, Anyways, moving forward. So Prince Viserys, the first Targaryen, grandson of the king, was eventually elected as the king's new heir. And there was many other kind of very un- unregistered claims, things that didn't make sense. Four bastards of, of Princess Sarah, each born of a different father, yeah. all dismissed. One bastard claiming to be uh, a bastard of, of Magor the Cruel. <laughs> right. Uh, as proof, he brought his mother, who said she was, she was raped by Magor. The council outright didn't believe him right mm. when he presented himself. And the last uh, bizarre one, a nobleman claiming to be a descendant of Game and the Glorious, producing kind of like the, they, they describe it like he walks up with the endless roll of parchment and drops it. And it's like the list of a thousand and four holds. Yeah. Um, yeah. So his his claim was ultimately dismissed. So again, that's right. Only we, two choices. Yeah. yeah. We j- Chris Jericho uh, just made it into a Game of Thrones podcast. It's a, it's a great cross <laughs> I managed to do it. Three cheers for Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so again, the only two choices after the, these deliberations, after the 14 were put forward, were uh, Lainor, the young son of Princess Rhaenys and Corlys Valerian, and Viserys the first, Prince of Balon, uh, son of Prince Balon and uh, Alyssa Targaryen. Right. So this is where we take the quote from Fire and Blood. The principle of primogeniture favored Lainor. The principle of proximity favored Viserys. And this is where we split procession and uh or sorry succession and people essentially take a side start picking yeah okay where and 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 between laner and viserys sorry well, I, I missed the last part no between laner and viserys this is that's that that's where the the line starts to be drawn yes yes that's right where the line starts to be drawn at at that great council in 101 ac many people sided with laner because his father corliss valerian is extremely rich at this point probably the most wealthy man in the seven kingdoms Right. And they say he kind of did like the Oscar campaign where he walked around and shook everybody's hand and was like, Hey, you know, <laughs> consider my son, right? <laughs> consider yeah. my son. Here's a pile of gold. Here's, here's some Arbor gold. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like like Mirama- um, Miramax in the late nineties. Got it. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately it was an easy choice despite the fact that, uh, you know, Lenor had this, this, expensive and elaborate plan behind him. He was still a child of seven. Mm. Uh, whereas Viserys was a man of 24 years old and that, really, really was the deciding factor. So in an unsurprising result, the assembled lords swayed towards Viserys I and set that in stone by voting for him, making him the king to succeed Jaehaerys I. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he wins. He wins. Viserys wins. wins. Yep. It's like a, you win American Idol. You just now, you you know, you don't, do you want that? Do you want that? All right. So now we, uh, uh, and again, we're, we're, we're running through a lot of stuff. We're just kind of setting the tone, just kind of going beat by beat on the timeline here, building up uh, in our discussion to the Dance of the Dragons, which does not happen for now. We're looking at about 26 years roughly from this point, but the seeds are more than sown. Uh, they are sprouting. They're sprouting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we, you know, we we have another kind of the last of these sad moments for for King Jaehaerys and, and Alysanne who have both passed away. And it's around this time where Archmaester Vagon Targaryen passes away, leaving only Sarah in uh, Volantis at this time surviving them, which is, again, just just sad that the only child that survived was the one who fled. Yeah, and that is what it's a roughly 101 AC. Yeah. But at the same no, they, time, they didn't put a date on it, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, roughly, yeah. Um, yeah. 
But hey, what you said, you know, look at that. That means something to me. That the only child who ran away from all of this was like, I'm good, Sarah. Yeah. The only one surviving. Hmm. I don't know. I look at uh, Jon Snow and I'm like, yeah, okay. He might have I'm, I'm also thinking of another two Targaryens who fled Westeros and survived, or one of them survived anyways, in Viserys yeah. and Daenerys later on, right? right. Yeah. Yep. For very different reasons, that different. being said. <laughs> um, so, so going forward, in, in 103, uh, King Jaehaerys, the first Targaryen, the conciliator, dies and Viserys succeeds him. Right. Um, being that Jaehaerys was this successful, uh, his grandson Viserys inherited a, a wealthy, stable, successful, and extraordinarily strong kingdom. Uh, it's probably the best handover of the kingdom from king to king that will ever take place in Westeros. Gotcha. Unless they adjust the history again, as George loves to do. <laughs> as he does. As this is one. This also marks kind of the beginning of, of Viserys and Daemon playing this, this dance between the two of them, where it was Viserys constantly trying to appease Daemon by giving him different titles and positions and, you know, okay. exceptions and things like that. Gotcha. So now we go to, uh, one, we're in 104. We are, yes. We're moving, moving down the line here fast. So uh, quickly after making an enemy out of the king's hand, Otto Hightower, Damon's removed as master of coin and made master of laws. Uh, mm. <laughs> again, lasting a very short period of time, as once again, the king's hand would beg Viserys to remove Damon from the small council, um, being that he was the king's brother. Instead, Viserys made him commander of the city watch, which all things considered is uh, laughable <laughs> at that point. But uh, so I don't really feel bad for Viserys as some of like, I have two friends who are kind of like, oh, his brother does him so wrong. Right. It's also on him, you know, like, like he's, he's a king, you're a new king, make, make some wise decisions, not just decisions based on your blood. Right. As, as we saw Jaharis make time and time again. Right. Um, so at this point, uh, Damon grew more powerful, amassing kind of an army uh, within the city watch and the, the urchins being well known amongst the low lives of the city. Uh, and grew to know a prostitute named Missaria. Um, it's never. This, this is, it's never. Good. Sorry, go. No, it's never. Good. No, no, it's it's never good, and it would certainly become uh, the real divide between him and Viserys. It would take it from a disdain to an actual divide. Okay. Um, Damon, now second in line to the throne, ex- like very much coveted, uh, coveted, coveted the title of Prince of Dragonstone, and believed himself to be Viserys's only heir as you know as the lords and ladies were concerned that was the case but mm. if you're rainies and you're all the other people who Alison back that was not the case right so again we already have a fight for succession within two years of the new king being named um things aren't steady no so this this now in 105 is where queen ama passes away during balon during prince balon targaryen's birth this is not the the former prince balon who dies in 101 of a stitch in his side but right. named for him um, again, you know, th- this death is a very key moment in what would give rise to the Targaryen civil war and baby Balon would pass only a day later. This is a very dark part in this story, but I felt like it needed to be told. Okay. Um, yeah. So after, after baby Balon's death, Prince Daemon is out in a brothel, um, and people spot him drunkenly joking about the air for a day, which yeah. makes me uncomfortable even talking about it. Mm. Um, when word of this made it back to the king, he was infuriated and immediately named Rhaenyra his new heir, despite his brother. Gotcha. So this is where that disdain turns into an actual divide and would equate to years of fighting from here forward. And they would reconcile many times, but it would never go back to normal. The lords of the realm then swore their fealty 
to Princess Rhaenyra. And upon hearing this news, Damon resigned his position and fled for Dragonstone on Caraxes, bringing Nasaria, his prostitute friend, with him. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, they would uh, have a child or, or she would become pregnant with his child. And he would present her with a gift, a very Targaryen gift, a dragon egg. Uh, this, you know, being being that he stole this king from the family, his his brother was enraged and demanded, uh, this is a quote, demanded that he return the egg, send his whore away, and return to his lawful wife, Rhea, or else be attainted as a traitor. Mm. Damon reluctantly obeyed and sent Missaria back to Lee aboard a ship. He disdainfully returned to Runestone in the Vale and then to his wife... And when news reached Damon that Missaria had lost the child during his storm on the narrow sea, he said absolutely nothing, but his heart hardened even further against his brother, the king. And this is where that divide really happens. And this is where eventually Damon will support one side of this argument that seems somewhat counterintuitive. So it's boom. So the death of uh, baby Balon, like I said, is, is, is part of the, uh, the tapestry of, of <laughs> anger building up and, and more than just building up, exploding out of Damon. Yeah, the the grief of losing a child and then to have someone as close as your brother uh yeah. you know make make light of that is such a dark a dark beat. I can't imagine that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so from there, uh despite being named her father's successor, uh Rainiera still had loads of detractors at court um who pushed the young king of Viserys, I don't even think he was 30 at the time, to to have another son. And so a year later, he would remarry, as we said, this time to Alicent Hightower, the daughter of Sir Otto Hightower, the king's hand, for many years uh, after the passing of Septon Barth and Balon. Um, At the wedding feast, Princess Rhaenyra quickly grew fond of her new stepmother, Alicent. This is kind of, again, counterintuitive to this story, but who in turn named her daughter publicly, and their relationship was off to just a fantastic start. And... We go back to to Damon reacting to these these right. moments, and when a messenger arrived to tell him about uh, Amon's, or sorry, uh, when a messenger arrived to tell him about Viserys's nuptials, he was said to have virtually keep, like whipped the man to death. Uh, once again, completely disdainful toward being lowered yeah. in the succession order. And, and Targaryen rage is real. <laughs> it's oh, very very real. Yeah, very real. Um, so once again, Damon on Caraxes then fled uh, the Vale of Arryn. And led an army alongside Corlys Valerian um, and his fleet to invade the Stepstones. Gotcha. Once again, deserting his wife, his wife Rhea, and this time making an actual enemy out of House Royce, which again comes into play later in the dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, a couple of small details here in the next two years. Really, only uh, in 107 AC and 108 AC, the only major detail is that Prince Aegon's born to King Viserys I and Queen Alicent, his first male heir. Mm-hmm. And then in 109, uh, Princess Helena is born to the king and queen. Um, at this point, King Viserys, there's a small note that I thought was kind of interesting in here. We talk about this separation between Viserys and between, um, between Viserys and Daemon. And after conquering nearly all of the islands, Daemon declared himself King of the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea and was crowned by Corlys Valerian. And during this time, King Viserys was actually funding these war efforts in the Stepstones, despite not being in agreement and not actually publicly supporting what he was doing he was sending gold and funding the efforts so it's almost like he was glad to be rid of him and he's like here's some money go fight your war down there stay out of my hair gotcha is that like uh it's almost like when you uh promote someone you don't like to a new position to get him out of your office that works for me yeah yeah that's 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 pretty similar yeah <laughs> so Never done that. we we are almost there we are almost at the the tourney that kind of yeah. Gives gives the name to the blacks and greens. So at, at 110 AC, mm-hmm. 
Ooh, so what was that slow clap? Uh, Alden's that. leading a slow clap for you. Everyone's uh, excited to your outline's exciting people, and I love that. Awesome. Um, so in in one ten AC, uh, Prince Amon, mm-hmm. the the second male heir, is born to King Viserys the first and Queen Allison. And uh, again, that potentially burgeoning relationship between Princess Rhaenyra and Queen Allison quickly soured. Both of them wanted to be the quote unquote first lady at right. court. Uh, and that made them butt heads on almost every issue. Um, and despite the fact that he actually had two male heirs, King Viserys had yet to rescind the order of succession he had bestowed upon Rhaenyra. Okay. So Rhaenyra at this point was still the princess of Dragon- Dragonstone despite two capable male heirs. Uh, Otto, the Otto Hightower, then handed the king, badgered the king so relentlessly that the king stripped him of his title and sent him back to Old Town, then naming Lionel Strong the hand of the king. And it's shortly after these events where the official divide began between the princess's party and the queen's party. The queen was allied with many powerful lords who supported her as queen and her sons as potential heirs, while the princess of Dragonstone had many of the men and women at court in her favor uh, of two very different groups. And again, that divide became more prevalent and was even talked about in places like Flea Bottom and in King's Landing in general. There was jokes made about how the blacks and the greens were always at each other at this point they hadn't gained that name yet but the princess and the queen were always at each other and there was always some quarrel gotcha so from here we move into kind of that last beat of this uh and this is a great tournament held in king's landing in 111 ac to celebrate the fifth anniversary of king the king and queen's marriage and great Uh, tournaments always are a problem in game of thrones Every time there's a tournament, you just you're just waiting for the ball to drop. Right? Someone's gonna do something that pisses off someone in a great tournament. Oh yeah! So uh, at the opening feast of this tourney, Queen Allison wore a green gown, whilst Princess Rhaenyra, in quote, dressed dramatically in Targaryen red and black. Note was thereafter taken, and it became custom to refer to the greens and the blacks when talking of the queen's party and the party of the princess, respectively. Um, at the tournament, the Blacks ultimately, you know, quote, won. Um, Kristen Cole, wearing the princess's favor, unseated every one of the Queen's champions, all of them her family, two of them cousins, and one her youngest brother. So there's some humiliation in there, too. Not only a loss, but some real familial humiliation in there as well. Gotcha. Um, so at that point, bored with ruling the Stepstones and being driven out by the confined uh, combined forces of the Dornish and the Three Sisters of the Triarchy, Damon fled and returned to King's Landing. Uh, this, again, is one of these scenes that I really hope we get to see because I think it's one of the most cinematic in Fire and Blood. Uh, Damon arrived on Caraxes unannounced, smack in the middle of one of the days of the tournament. He circled the grounds three times on the backs of his dragon, and when he finally landed, he kneeled before his brother and presented his new crown as a token of his love and fealty, the crown that Cor- Corliss Valerian had given him a couple of years earlier. Mm-hmm. Much to everybody's surprise, the king stepped down, gave the crown back to his brother immediately, and much to the, the delight of the lords and commoners alike, welcomed him home by kissing him on both cheeks. The crowd erupts. And amongst the loudest cheering there is Princess Rhaenyra, uh, overjoyed to see her favorite uncle, who she quickly began to beg to stay. Gotcha. Uh, Damon fell back in with some old friends, uh, and his relationship with the new queen was very sour and very cold very fast, again, being bumped down the line of succession. Um, but he did spend a lot of time with the princess of Dragonstone, Rhaenyra. He mm-hmm. told her stories of his exploits. He gave her all kinds of gifts and from different places and far off lands. Um, they'd race atop their dragons, and he even declared her to be the fairest maid in all the Seven Kingdoms. Mm. But it's like my favorite line in all of this. But best of all, 
he shared her disdain for the greens. And that is really where this whole thing kicks off. We now have the blacks. We now have the greens. The divide is there. You can see where the issue is. And there's so much more going forward. I love this, Thomas. This is a, a great, uh, sh- you know, uh, short. Like there, there's so much information, and, and you're working through 45 plus years of history here. Um, this is a, a great breakdown of how we get to this moment. Why the Greens, why the Blacks now exist within this uh, Targaryen family and friends, uh, and how that's going to explode. So set us set us up as best you can right now. The the two. The two combatants in this main event that's about to explode. So we are dealing again with Queen Alicent, who married uh, Queen King Viserys in 106. And we are dealing with uh, Princess Rhaenys, the princess of Dragonstone, born, I believe, in 90... Oh, I can't remember the year she was born at the moment at the time. Um, what we're looking going forward, there's one specific moment here that actually, in my mind, launches the Civil War. Okay. The actual, not, not another seed, but actually launches it. And it's the small council meeting that happens shortly after this tournament. Um, in this small council meeting, tempers flare. Uh, allegiances are made and set in stone. And those allegiances are carried right through until 131 at the end of the Dance of the Dragons. And there you go. So we're we're going to get into more of that in other episodes here. We wanted, we felt it was important to set the tone and just have fun with this. And 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 not that fire and blood needs a, an advertisement from us, but just that uh, these are little kind of uh, entry points to these little fingers of story that crawl off and yeah. and, um, and and they jump off the page a lot, which is why. Yeah, which is why I've I, you know I've seen I've seen some people who don't love this book as much, and and, and that's fine. Uh, you, to each their own. Uh, we experience these stories differently. I just yeah, it's just you feel they do such a good job, especially after Jaharis dies. There's kind of a sense of um, like I said, underlying dread, tension that things which were so good for so while that just there's, there's darkness looming, and you know it's coming. If you've just even just a casual fan, you've heard of Targaryen civil wars, you've heard of. Uh, there's some dragons and they do love to dance. You can, you really start to feel it in this book and, and why it all, uh, it's so layered and done so well by George R. R. Martin. This is what he does. And now it, it, it all kind of leads to this big fun, con- fun confrontation. <laughs> so fun for us. We enjoy this history, but maybe, maybe not yeah. so fun for the people involved. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, next time, and we're not necessarily done talking about it here now, next time we're really going to take a dive into, uh, um, you know, we're going to take a dive into more of specific details as we lead up to the actual um, actual fight, actual uh, the dance of the dragons and all the characters and all the key moments that might fuel this show. Might. We say might. And I've seen some wonderful conversations here in the chat. Thank you for everyone who's uh, watching along. As Ranger Donald said, that's a whole series just there. Kristen McGee says uh, riveting. Spud Murphy wants you to pour yourself a drink, Thomas. Uh, D- uh, Danielle uh, Ramirez says, I really enjoyed this book. I, I was pretty pumped to get an actual Targaryen history book and uh, just what we read in uh, World, not just what we read in World of Ice and Fire. Yeah, World of Ice and Fire is a great book too. And I think when this, when I first heard about this book, Thomas, and this book came out, I was thinking, all right, World of Ice and Fire. I had a lot of fun with that. It's a it's a tabletop book. You kind of flip through. You read a painting. You check on something. Uh, I read every page, but I didn't take it all in. I just kind of, eh, it's here. Um, this is George going deep into his own world and those Targaryens, which are the center of so much. Uh, so much, even though they've you know only been in these parts uh, well, what conquest for 300 years, but they were already here before that there. So three, 400 year range. Uh, and to have this, um, you know, this, this is the center of the special story going forward too in the world. Um, 
it's 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 a rewarding book in that regard. Yeah, and some of my favorite George R. R. Martin things are the unanswered. And this this book, as many things as it answers, it also gives us more questions than we had coming in. So it's yeah. you know that that for me is great. That's what I want out of George's work. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, what, a little preview of what we're going to get next uh, next from you here. Then we'll take some. Uh, we got some uh, pre-selected questions, some calls in from Anchor here, and on my Discord server, Thomas. What are you looking forward to focus on next here as we look at the greens and the blacks? So focusing on the greens and the blacks, we are going to be covering likely the period from 111 AC till right up till the dance in 129 or maybe just late 128. Uh, in that period, we see uh, the entirety of Viserys the first rule and his eventual passing. Uh, we also see the the full establishing of the blacks and the greens and their separation as to not only uh, parties at court, but actual political parties vying for the throne. Um, and we, we begin to see the introduction of a lot of characters. So there's leading into the dance, we get many, many, many characters who play very pivotal roles and they all kind of are introduced in this next 20 year period. So that's what the next chunk will focus primarily on. We're, pu- we're putting the chess pieces on the board. Uh, we, exactly. This one, we've just got the bo- the board game out of storage, and hey, anyone want to play a Civil War game? Yeah, okay. Now, now the pieces are going to be on the table. That's great. Love that. Uh, yeah, and I saw earlier, uh, Rob. Rob's been uh, just dropping some good bits of knowledge and having fun uh, uh, catching, uh, watching us live here. Uh, trying to, uh, where did you say that, Rob? About it? any d- discussion of uh, of the book Fire and Blood, it needs to serve as uh, advertisement because it is it's a really good book, and if you've um, we talked about it a little bit last week. I, 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 the answer is definitely read the Song of Ice and Fire series before this. I was playing around with the idea of, hey, maybe there's some value in reading this first before you get into the other ones. Only be just just because, you know, do you watch episode one, two, and three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, nine of Star Wars, or do you jump around in the release order? I always go release order so you can experience it culturally and uh, as we all experienced it. Uh, but there's some something interesting about this because I, I don't think you're, you know, you, you know, you, you, you you'd go into the song of ice and fire with a lot of knowledge, but yeah, not needed in the end until you get to really play around in the world. But that's my thoughts on that little book ramble. Yeah. Fire and blood really assumes that, you know, kind of the yeah. world already, despite the fact that it's a history book, it really assumes, you know, so it is the best yeah. thing to start with the song and then go back. I love that. All right. We are on the podcast. Going to take a quick break. If you're watching live or a little bit later on YouTube and Facebook, you're going to be getting a little, uh, a uh, bonus uh, discussion uh, as we uh, change files because the glamorous world of podcast recording is what you're really watching right now. So stick around here on Casterly Talk. We'll be right back. It's time, baseball fans. The new podcast feed, Box Score Heroes, has arrived. This is the new home of the show, Behind the Bag, with Ken Napsok and Tom Dagnino. And is also the place to find shows like The Legends of the Wax Packs, the only baseball power rankings you need, and My Favorite Baseball, a nostalgic look back at the game we all love, and more. Find the podcast feed on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are found. Box Score Heroes is your podcast home for everyone with a a passion for all things baseball. Welcome back here to Casterly Talk. 
Dr. Thomas Atal proving why he is a knight around these parts with a great look back at what led us up to the blacks, the greens, the great council, the war of secession that was brewing and about to explode. All of this could factor greatly, greatly underlined a few times into up the upcoming HBO spinoff, prequel series, whatever you want to call it, House of the Dragon. All right, Thomas, uh, we have some questions. We got some calls coming in here uh, shortly. Uh, but first, let's go to some questions here from my Discord server that you can reach going to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash catnapsock. Anyone who signs up and supports is eligible eligible to pop into the Discord server, and there's a Casterly Talk channel there. So let's go in here. I am uh, reading this one from Ranger Donald, who is live in chat right now. He says, hey, Ken and the rest of the council today, uh, Thomas, but Ace, Lon, and Rachel is here in spirit as well. Ranger Donald asks, in the books and show, everything largely takes place and talks about in Westeros and Essos, also the occasional uh, what's west of Westeros. But the land I'm most interested in, and that never really gets mentioned or talked about, is Sotheros. What do you think about it, and what's going on down there, if anything? And do you think you will ever we'll ever get to learn more about it, other than we know, what we know or even see it? Or is it more fun just being a mystery? Also, quick thoughts on uh, Yeeti and why George creates these interesting areas and makes far... Um, Far back histories about them, then just leaves them be. Uh, we're talking about all this history. George does love to do that. So, okay, take it away, Thomas. What do you think about Sothros? Uh, you know, this this mysterious land of the south. So there's there's a couple of things. There's immediately there's a clip that pops into my mind of George being interviewed alongside um, Lin, is it Linda and Elio, the people that that have kind of curated his world for him. Yeah. Um, and he's asked the question, you know, hey, when are we ever going to see more of of Sothorios? And he kind of does the answer well when i feel like writing it and that yeah. again is why i love george <laughs> yeah I, I like the mystery there's the mystery of the brindle men who are this kind of thick-skinned tough race of people exclusively native to sothorios who have kept everybody out for a long long time yeah. there's also i can't remember if it's et or if it's sothorios that has the lizard men um, right. but there's also the, the talk of lizard men, which again, in the world of a song of ice and fire, which at times seems so grounded in medieval Europe. Um, yeah. I like the, the high fantasy elements like that kind of sneaking their way in the back door. Yeah. Uh, and Sothorios, yes, I, I Sothoros is my mind always goes to that. You never want to mispronounce things on the internet. You'll get tossed <laughs> out of the internet. Um, I, what I'm fascinated with is that George takes the time t- to do this and, 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 and the fact that he doesn't use them, that's what I'm fascinated with because it just makes it seem like a bigger, more robust world. Case in point for me, a shy. I love that. I'm obsessed with it. You know, maybe it's because I like Melisandre. Maybe it's like a lot of the characters that go there. I like what, you know, does it connect? Does it go around? But what is in the shadow? And he's basically said, yeah, in the next few books, now nah, you're not going to get much about it. You're going to get some mentions, some references. And I, and it does frustrate me at times because I, I, I love my maps and I look at these maps and I, I do this with the map. I do, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm, what's going on there? What do they feel about Joffrey? What do they feel about the Night King? What do they feel? What do they feel? We'll never really know. And I secretly love that, even though it frustrates me. I love that George is like, nah, I'm just creating this, all of this history so that it makes what I'm telling here in this little center part of the story just that much more realistic. Yeah, I always I always try to create a POV when we're kind of taking in these worlds, right? As as a person right. who would be in it. 
And, you know, in our own world, there's, there's so many corners of this world, unless you're very, very lucky uh, that, that we'll never see. Um, and, and, you know, carrying that through into this works for me. It, it makes it feel like a real lived in world. Like you said, Ken. Yeah. Bigger, more robust, but that doesn't mean we are not a little more frustrated when we can't get some more information. We love information. Sarah Risley, who's watching in chat uh, and cheering you on as well, Thomas, says, what's the council's take on the Queen of Thorns, Olena Tyrell's role in the rest of the books? She was one of my favorite characters from the show, and I'm wondering if her role was expanded in the later seasons because of the amazing actress portraying her, Diana Rigg, uh, because of, uh, or, or uh, because of the outline given by George. So... You and I were talking off air about this because we both love the Queen of Thorns. We absolutely love, uh, and Diana Rigg is not only just great in this. She's, she's, you know, she's uh, connected to what Bond stuff. She, for me, she was. Uh, I grew up knowing her as, as the kind of villainous uh, woman from uh, the Great Muppet Caper. Which oh was, wow, yeah, uh, where I first saw her, Charles Grodin's. I think she plays Charles Grodin's sister in the story. Uh, so she's great. Queen of Thorns is great. And that happens. That does happen. George has talked about it. Uh, he has, He's talked about there's sometimes there's some performances on on the show that have changed uh, even the value of the character in the story or brought a little different take to it there. I, I, I still think Shay is way better on the show, which but does lead to some problems in the end because for me, for me, even a, a super positive type of fan, like her, her and Tyrion's fallout happens fast, happens fast when the book I, I didn't have as, as I didn't have problems with it, but it just seemed like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It seemed I could see that coming where it's so vibrant. It's so in front of you. You you see you see their performances and it changes your view of the character. So how does that all apply to you and the Queen of Thorns? So, you know, kind of, again, going back to what Sarah says here, like I, I do to some extent think that her role may have been increased in, in her latter appearances in the show, just because of how fantastic Diana Rigg is. Um, mm. I, I do think that she's superior in the show because of the portrayal by Diana Rigg. Um, is it Diana Rigg or Diana Rigg? I always keep saying I, Diana. I say Diana. Well, I'll, dub, I'll double check then. Okay, let's just we'll stick with it. Both of us are going with it. Uh, so yeah, I I, I am firmly Rick. in the camp of I think uh, the Queen of Thorns role was extended a little bit for the show because of the acting. I think in the books we're more likely to see her kind of reside um, yep. in a political position and and not be so regularly involved in the ongoings of the throne. If that yeah. makes sense. And look, there's the, there's interviews you you can find them on youtube i love i love just uh, listening to george R. R. martin interviews um he's got a very weird oddly relaxing voice uh, number one but he, he's just so knowledgeable about the own world that he's he's created he's so in tune with it. you can just ask him a question and these are truly we, real people with real histories but there's been a few times he has i've seen him met like yeah i can no longer not hear the tv character in my head when i'm writing some of the stuff it's hard you just can't you just can't uh, and yeah, Ranger Donald following up on that one there too. Let's here take some live comments. Uh, 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 Braun, he says Brown, but Braun is far better of a show character than the books. I agree with that. Jerome Flynn comes in, brings life to something. And then quite frankly, in the books, uh, kind of dissipates off. We'll see where it ends up. And again, that does factor into the show a little bit. Some of that stuff in season eight with Braun wasn't my favorite because I just felt they were kind of like, ah, crap, we got to figure out how to do this. Uh, Alden says, Jamie and Elena's final scene together is an all-time highlight of the show for me. Brilliant character, wonderful wonderful performance. Might be my favorite death in the show. Might yeah. be. Yeah. So yeah. 
So, Sarah, to, to your bigger question at hand, uh, uh, what we think going forward in the books, I, I agree with Thomas there. Uh, it, not, not in the background by any means. No one who's in head, the head of House Terrell is in the background in any version of the story. But it just it might not pop as much. It might not seem. And, and there's so many characters still at play. Not that you'll get lost in the shuffle, but you'll have to look a little harder. So we'll see there. Uh, Lauren Romo has this question, and we got a kind of a follow-up question to uh, this in our own Discord. Lauren Romo says, uh, watching GOT, and I believe Theon's arc is, excuse me, rewatching GOT, and I believe Theon's arc is one of the best that the show produced. What are your thoughts on Theon's overall character arc in the show? And then uh, Red Xavier uh, followed that up. So there's a moment I can't can't remember which episode where Theon and Ramsay are in the tunnels beneath the Dreadfort during the whole Scape Ruse bed, and where Theon laments what he's done and says that uh, that's Stark's that that Stark's where his real family. Of course, he went on and continued to do great things, uh, culminating in sacrifice for his brother. But I think that's where it uh, really came together for me. So that's, that is that great moment there. Uh, talk uh, talk a little bit about that there, um, uh, Thomas, about Theon, what you think, and I'll give my thoughts on on the character as well. I think Theon's journey is one of redemption, I think is why I enjoy it so much. We see a character, you know, that's, I mean, in, in the books from the first appearance, very detestable dude kicks, it kicks a severed head. Yeah. Um, but in, in the show, a little less detestable. He's just kind of more of like a pompous mm-hmm. kid. Um, yeah. I like the redemption story arcs. They mean a lot to me personally. There's something that I've always connected with them. Um, I feel like there's two redemption story arcs that really matter to me, Jamie's and Theon's. Uh, I feel like Theon's is stronger because by the time he goes, I feel as though he's redeemed. Whereas though I like, and you know, he did some terrible things too, but I sadly, I don't feel as much as I love Jamie. I don't feel that by the time his journey's over, he's redeemed. And that's, you know, yeah. I I always love Theon's journey for that specifically. Yeah. I I'm with you too. I love the Greyjoys more than other people, uh, book and show and and, and certainly more robust in the books. It's going to be, everything's going to be more robust in the books, but on, 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 on the show, I feel for Theon and I hate him at the same time. And I, I, I love the, the conflict we have as fans early on for Jamie, Cersei, I talk often here in Castle Talk, the scenes with Robert and Cersei, but also the scenes with Robert and Jamie and Barristan and talking about the first kill. You really start to uh, feel for Jamie in a different way and, and it conflicts you. But Theon, and again, because the show, they couldn't hide Reek from you in the book. It, you know, I, I know a lot of people played out a lot differently in the book. Who's this Reek guy? <laughs> What's going on? Shocker. Um, I, I really, I don't, I don't know. I, I like the great show. I like their, you know, I like that they try to rise up constantly and they can't do it. <laughs> and there's kind of this like, take what's, uh, pay the iron price, but eh, we probably shouldn't leave the water. We're kind of stuck <laughs> over here. So I like all that. And yeah, the first redemptions, it, I, I do like uh, where it ends up. I, I do like his death simply because I like the idea that you can be redeemed in these stories, similar to Ben Solo. You can be redeemed, but you still have sins you have to pay for and you can't stick around for the party. And there's something that I really took, I took that emotionally from Theon's journey. Yeah, you, underneath, you're conflicted. You're totally conflicted. I saw Danielle Ramirez in our um, uh, in our chat here. Uh, number one, Alfie Allen did a wonderful job in the show, but she said, Theon Reek stories are so good and emotionally conflicting. Yeah, because you want, you're like, yeah, you, you know, you, you, Winterfell and you led to that led to Maester Lewin's death and all these horrible things just on the show just on the show I want you to die but then you're there and you're like this ain't right this ain't right something's going he just wanted to be loved 
Yeah, those those emotional stories, those side stories, you know, whether you consider Theon and Jamie side characters or not, I guess is a matter of of subjectivity, but um those those stories are so emotionally conflicting, like you said, because you have two halves of your heart. You have the the half of you that wants to say, This guy's bad, he's done reprehensible things. How can we forgive him? Yeah. Um, and then there's the other part of you that says, He's done so much to come back. He's he's trying so hard. Every mistake he makes is for the right reason. Yeah. And and you know, still when it happens, again with Theon, I feel like he's come back with Jamie. I, I just don't feel like it totally got there for me. But that moment that you mentioned where they're talking about their first kill, yeah. I also feel like is kind of indicative of the world the boys are raised up in. Yes. You know, it, it's, it, it changes and they're all raised at a young age to, to know death as familiar as uh, well as they know their sword hand. Yes. Right. Yes. And that's, that's kind of disturbing as well. Right. Setting Jamie up as almost a tragic character in a certain sense. Yeah, a lot of tragedy. Sarah's got a great question here. Is uh, is Theon's character arc the only true redemption in the show? Every other character, like Jamie, is still who they are at heart. Uh, yeah, that, that's 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 tough. That's tough to maybe for me to answer because again, I don't know. Like I, I I understand. I still love Cersei's end. Right. I still love that she came the kingdom she wanted. The only thing she wanted was what destroys her, and, and it becomes crashing down on her. But she gets a little bit of love. She gets to feel it. Because mm-hmm. when Robert stares at her and says, there was no chance for us ever, ever. Yeah. No, my and heart, our, our main man, Jorah, too. Yeah, my heart, he, yeah. He has a great full circle redemption story in my mind, right? Uh, he does. Exiled. Yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. I'll go with that, my man, Jorah. Um, but Theon's is, is, yeah, Theon maybe goes the longest, goes through the mud, and, and still makes mistakes. The stuff with Sansa, make that, yeah. that's horrendous mistakes. But he's also, that, that that controversial scene with with Sansa and uh, the the uh, rape scene. I mean, it's 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 tough. It's tough to watch, and it oh, yeah. and it kind of should be. And they made some choices as creators that maybe people weren't happy with, it, which I fully understand. It isn't a comment about that, but in the in the book, like in in the book, not only are the characters different and the actions slightly different, um, it's I that's that's the most I felt for him was that scene yeah. in the book. I just yep. felt and I think so bad. Ultimately, it comes down to that not making the same mistake again. He had the chance to run again, facing yeah. the Night King, and didn't. Yeah, right. That's yeah. learning from your mistakes. That's all we can expect of people, right? Right. Theon, you're a good man. Says Spud Murphy. Must admit uh, that that scene brought a tear to my eye. That's great. And a lot of people, uh, you guys are doing great with some follow ups. Uh, Rob's pointing out Sandor too. Yeah, there's there's a lot of. I I think I understand the spirit of Sarah's question though. It's it's maybe the most overt uh, kind of uh, redemption, but uh, but everyone kind of grows. There's a lot of growth. There's a lot of growth in these characters, yeah. but all of they still feel who they are. Uh, I don't. I don't think Sandor loses who he is, and he still, um, he kind of knows he has to go in a way, and maybe wants yeah. to at times. Um, yeah, George, good answer there too. All right, so we are going to go to some calls. If uh, they're not live calls, they're pre-taped calls from. Anchor, if you listen to the podcast, you can go over to the Anchor app, call in. you got about 59 seconds. We do have a uh, a double call from someone who's been trying to get in. I want to make sure to take the call. It uh, goes back to some Season 8 uh, questions he had that I had uh, originally tried to answer probably on the fly and a little uh, incorrectly. So here we go. Uh, bring this up so they're not staring at our faces while we look if you're watching live. And here's the first one from Mitch. This is a two-parter from Mitch. Hey, Ken and Casually Talk fans. This is Mitch from Dallas, Texas. This is actually like my 20th time trying to fit everything into a minute. So I hope just this one time you'll accept me breaking it into two parts. Promise it won't happen again. 
But I'm a big fan of all the Castery Talk crew and want to thank you for continuing the podcast even after the show has passed. My question is about John, but before I ask, I want to provide a little context about two things that seem almost necessary when talking about this show now. Those are that I've actually never read the books. I'm halfway through the first one right now, so I'll get there. And that I absolutely love season eight and will never back down on it when my friends give me a hard time about it. Uh, I actually emailed you this question right after the show ended, like the night of, because I needed to get your opinion on it. But you answered it in a different way than I meant it. So I'm going to ask it again. So here it goes. So my question is, what did John being a Targaryen matter? And when I asked in the email, you took it as I was asking about the prophecy, but I was actually asking what it meant to the world itself. The whole series has been hyping up this reveal that he actually is a Targaryen. They tease it in the second episode, Ned's last words to John, and then of course the actual reveal in season six, episode ten, when it cuts from baby John to real John. Definitely one of my favorite moments. But it seems like this would lead on to be a big deal to all the people of Westeros in the story. I'm not saying it didn't matter because it was one more reason for Danny to turn. And it was like kind of like a secret week to the audience. Like we all know he's the rightful king as he rides off in the sunset. I can't completely find the right words to express how I felt about it, but it just seemed all this hype wasn't for anything with him being a Targaryen for no other reason than to help Danny's turn. What are your thoughts? All right, Thomas. Uh, let's, this is a great question for Mitch to re-ask. Uh, mm-hmm. And love that he loves season eight. We we love season eight around these parts, uh, warts and all. So, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, the the tar- John being a Targaryen to this world, to this story, and he's right about the big point about Danny. Uh, do you think it goes beyond that? Um. So you know, we were just talking about small moments, and I actually think it became something bigger because of how long it remained a mystery. I have kind of always think, and even when we get this in the books, I've always thought that John's heritage is more about his story and, and then later affecting Danny's and less about um, the perception of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I've in, in all of my theories around before this happened in the show and then later with the books, we'll see what happens. Um, I, I've always kind of had these theories of it's just going to stay small. It's only going to be a small group of people that know, and it's going to stay that way. Um, for me, I, I'm okay with that. Um, but I do understand the, the, the feeling, the need, especially not having read books and just watch the show to have that play out as something larger in season eight. I can see why that might bug you. Um, but, but for me, I've always viewed that as a smaller story be something more personal to John and then later on affecting Danny's story. Yeah, it absolutely affects Danny. And uh, yeah, you, I, I think there was all along R plus L equals J I got the T-shirts. I'm wearing that. We're all very happy to know that, right? When I wore the T-shirt to be like, yeah, <laughs> yes, I, I know what the truth is. Um, and I think there was that even expectation on my part that this is revealed. I don't know, a, a letter around the country or a proclamation, and and this is and and then that how that would affect uh, the the people. But I like what you said because we didn't get that. I like that it. this is more about John and his relation to this name and what that means and what it could mean for him taking the throne, for this this kingdom, this world. We talked about it earlier. He walks away. He's one of the only Targaryens to walk away from that mantle by choice. If you're following, uh, uh, you know, what uh, Sarah said, um, that, that, could be, that could be a tip of uh, not that he's going to go have his own kingdom and be rich and proud, but just kind of walk away from it all and be the last one surviving. I kind of like how it affects that. Similar to the name Skywalker, 
affects everything, the galaxy. But for a long time, the only ones who knew that Luke and Leia were the spawn of Anakin Skywalker, who became Darth Vader, was them and maybe Han and the small people. And it was what they did with that knowledge before the galaxy really figured that out at large. Uh, and the name does mean something going forward. So I don't know. I like what you take. What you're, I like your take there that this was more about how affected John definitely affects Danny. It affects Danny in that way. I always talk about what's the thing about the bells, that great episode, her looking at the red keep, her between her and her kingdom and, and what she knows is hers. What is the legacy that we've been reading about in this book? That's mine. And yeah. that's one of the things in front of her. That's why it's powerful. But I like, I like what it means to John on a personal level. Well, we also just talked about Targaryen succession issues for, you know, however long. So it's, yeah. this is kind of a thing you can imagine if Danny knows anything about the history of her blood, I, you know, yeah. in the books, I can imagine there may be some worry from her there that is specifically related around all of these issues of succession that the Targaryens and Kings in general have had in the past. The only other thing on my mind is that John is from the very beginning, especially when you go back and do a rewatch, um, and even a reread, John is a very fractured young man, like yeah. emotionally, you know, you can tell there's a piece of him missing for me. That piece has always been the Targaryen lineage. Yeah. Um, and what I loved about the show is it's very George, very George esque tragedy to answer one question and really not have it answer anything for him. Yeah. yeah. He changed his name and that's about it. Yeah. He's still not a Stark. He's still not a Targaryen. You know, it's, what are you going to do? I hate to say it mildly for John, mildly inconsequential. Yeah. Uh, from, from my point of view, my, mildly inconsequential for him as, as a person, as on how it affects his life yeah. in total. Doesn't knock him off maybe from who he is or makes him more who he is. Uh, but these are great questions. Yeah. And again, Mitch, I love the Mitch call back. Mitch, thank you for watching, listening. Yeah. Thank you for continuing the conversation. Uh, sorry, I maybe misinterpreted it early on back in the day. But yeah, I loved, uh, uh, it's a great question. And, and there's a reasonable, it's reasonable to expect that it would have ended up being dealt with more by the, the kingdom at, at whole, uh, at large, but uh, it wasn't. And I, I think it was because it was, it was supposed to be a little bit small, a little bit smaller. All right. We got a couple more questions here. Thank you for the supersized edition. Everyone for sticking around, watching live or listening later. We uh, having a lot of fun doing this. We got a couple calls here from uh, Mark Meyer and Eric Monroe. Eric's a great contributor, uh, has a great call every week, and I love this one here. Tom. Hey, Cannon Cash for Talks. So one character I personally really hated was Janice Slint. I, I didn't like him in the books, never liked him on the show. I loved when Tyrion sent him to the wall in season two. Um, but because I disliked him so much, it's what, part, it's what made his execution scene so satisfying. I, I absolutely love it. I love that he thinks Sir Alistair Thorne's going to protect him, but no, he you know just gets out of the way. It's basically like, you got yourself in your own mess yourself and i can do about it um i love at the very end before john takes his head off that he admits the truth that he's a coward you know he says you know i've always been afraid and you know john still as lord commander does his duty takes his head off and i love the moment where he looks up at stannis and stannis gives him that little slight head nod of approval so what did you think about janice land Janos Slint Thomas, uh, I love uh, I love to hate Janos in the best way, and unlike any other character on the show, he's just he starts uh, where you're like I don't know I don't like that guy, and he ends where they're like I don't like that guy, kill him. There's not a lot of shades and gray for this character, and I love that. Yeah, I, I like like you know like you just said, there's not a lot of shades of gray. I'm I'm glad when Janos goes. Um, that that moment for John. Um, I think is a moment of remembering 
Bran and Bran's first beheading. Right. Don't look away. Father will know if you do. I think in that moment when, when Janice kind of breaks down and is honest, I think there's a moment there where John wants to look away and remembers his father, you know, not his father's, his, his, his uncle's sort of their adoptive father's teachings. Right. I think there's a, there's a nice callback to be found in there if you want to read that deep into it. But I do have a tendency to read too deep into some of these things. So. No, you could never, you could never uh, do that. Uh, I was sorry. I'm, I'm looking down here because I, I want to make sure I always forget the actor's name. It's Dominic Carter, who is the uh, actor on uh, Game of Thrones who does it. And I, and I think it's important to know again. Um, yeah. As, as Rob says, Janice Lynn has such a punchable face. That's that performer. That's an actor who just did such a good job of just continuing to be a little coward. And when he's at the wall, this is this is why this is why I love Sir Alistair Thorne. I I really do, and and he deserved what he got to, and he knew it. I fought, I lost, boom, that's it. I love I love that even Sir Alistair Thorne is just like, yeah, no, you're on your own, buddy. I I do still have honor, and I'm not sticking by you on this side because you have none left. I I think I love that. Yeah. Honor to the very end, right? Yeah, uh, that's uh, yes. Yeah, Spud says, "I'm denying the existence of your honor." One of the great Tyrion lines. Yeah, when he sends him up there. Uh, all right, uh, we got one uh, final call here from your buddy uh, Mark Meyer checking on in here. Tell him also about the podcast you guys do, Thomas. While I'm queuing up this call. Yeah, we have a collaborative podcast feed called Feeding the Monster Podcast Feed. You can find us on Twitter and everywhere else. Uh, basically, what we're doing is just trying to lighten the burden of these tough times. Nothing we do is too serious. It's all with a little bit of a comedic twist, and and we have a, a myriad of different shows. So I'm sure you can find one that interests you. Myriad shows. That's a good way to approach it. All right, here's Mark's call. Hey, Ken and Casterly Talk. This is Mark Meyer, and I wanted to ask you something. I know we've probably talked a little bit about Ramin Duwadi's score and how amazing it is, but how often do you find yourself going back and jamming it? I'll tell you something that happened to me not that long ago that was sort of a revelation. There's a track from season six called The Tower. And we know that this is the music playing when it is finally revealed what's going on in the Tower of Joy. We meet Liana. We are introduced to baby Jon Snow. And I noticed that going back to season one soundtrack, there's a track called Goodbye Brother. In that track is when Jon Snow is asking Ned Stark about his mother, where she is. Does she know about me? If you notice, that motif is the same motif used in the tower for season six. And it makes me wonder, do you think Ramin Dwadi knew or is that just a big coincidence? Love to hear your thoughts. Ooh, getting into the music of Game of Thrones. First of all, if you've not, not had the chance to go see Game of Thrones live, the live concert experience with Ramin Dwadi, just being an absolute rock star, do it. I've had the chance to, fortunate enough to see it twice uh, once at the Hollywood Bowl, once down at the uh, old uh, Great Western Forum. It's just an amazing show. And when you go to those type of things, when you really just focus on the music, we all know we love the music. We all know we love the opening theme and we love Dracarys and we love all those things. It's it's better than you even think. It's better than you even have, uh, you know, uh, let it get into your heart. It, it, is, it is in your soul when you watch it. And the themes and the motifs and everything he does, like I've never been a, I, n- I thought I wasn't a huge Arya Stark fan in terms of the music, like love the character, but like oh, you know some of the stuff, the music that plays a lot, I don't, eh, yeah, I like it, but it's okay. In concert, it like jumped out at me, like oh, this is her, this is so her. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think there was some kind of clue there, or uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. We'll never get that that answer. But what do you think? 
I, I immediately go to the conversation that we know uh, Dave and Dan had with George at the restaurant when they pitched the show. And he looked to them and said, hey, who's John's mother? And they answered it, bang on. Um, so in my mind, they, they knew. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know that they would have told Ramin Jawadi. I don't know that there's a need for that. I think they tell him, hey, there's, there's you know, this reveal will come later. Maybe let's add something in. I don't know if they have control over the score like that, to be honest. Um, musical motifs are one of my favorite things. That's why I love Lord of the Rings. The score pushes everything forward, and Game of Thrones is no different. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly can't say. Yeah, I mean, I, they'd have the control for, for sure, but, I mean, you're also going to let them do his thing. But it's also, make, you kind of reverse engineer it. Like, all right, what's that thing that popped up here? You know, they would know. Again, would they tell him? I think they could trust him. But very few people did know. I believe Sean Bean even knew in that moment. I think he he was playing it as an actor. They gave him that information. But, you know, it's very easy to just come back later on and be like, all right, hey, we're building to this. That thing you used there, we want to incorporate it here. We can do that if you want to look at it from that way. But I love looking at the clues. Look, you're talking to someone who, you know, had to work on a Star Wars show for a while where, you know, uh, the, the, one of the co-hosts was just obsessed with uh, Plagueis was going to show up here and was looking at every musical theme that connected to the Palpatine stuff and everything. And, and some of that played out a little different than we thought, but played out kind of in the same area. And by the way, it's fun to do that. Yeah. When I say that, like, it'd be fun to listen to it and be like, oh, you're right. It is the it is the opera scene. Ooh, speculation can run irresponsibly after that, but that's a different discussion for uh, all fandoms, but particularly Star Wars. But so... Yeah, I love that. I, I, I love these scores. Again, I, I, I pay attention to the, the dialogue more, the stories first, then I go back later on the music. I know people like Mark Riley. He's all about the scores up front and dives in. David W. Collins has that great show, the soundtrack show. I recommend it. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of powerful storytelling done with the music of these type of properties, Thomas. And you mentioned Lord of the Rings, Howard Shore. And so it's not surprising that that kind of stuff is there. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is and and the moment Mark's mentioning is is one of the earlier moments of of true heartbreak when you go back to rewatch the show. That, like you said, it's hard to to think that Sean Bean didn't know uh, in that moment because his face is so telling. That's one of the best moments of acting in the first season. It, well, yeah, and I, again, I I gotta find man. I I gotta remember. Um, you know, you see so many interviews, especially on YouTube. They're little clips, and a lot of times they're not sourced to the original thing. And that's why you can find a lot of these George R. R. Martin interviews. But I, I do believe, do believe, maybe, maybe it was on the, maybe it was on commentary season one. Listen to the audio commentaries. I do believe they gave Sean Bean that knowledge and just him, similar to to uh, Mark Hamill and the, the reveal of, of Vader. Only as an actor, they want him to play it right. Also, you know, as a director, producer type of thing, you're going to look at it, an actor and say, make. Make the choice you'd make, and it, it it's going to play different than we could even write it. So I think it, it think it's valuable to to give him that. I also recall something like that. I, I didn't want to to say for sure, but I, I do recall something like that. Him being told in advance. It, it it really might be commentary track stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, Rob says you can't go wrong with Sean Bean's acting uh, in general. All right, we have uh, this has been one of the the supersized editions of Casually Talk, but that's because we love talking it. And uh, I want to thank all of you who who listen and keep, continue to listen. And don't say, "Oh, Game of Thrones show, Game of Thrones is over. That's done with." No, the the world of Ice and Fire is so big and huge, and it's not just about looking back at the show; it's about looking what's to come. And Devin and I, as someone who's read all the books and has read Fire and Blood, still want to go in. Still 
have trouble remembering which high tower shows up where and everything. And I, I am excited to take a dive back in. I know Rachel Cushing is. Uh, Lon's just reading the books for the first time. Andre's ready to dive in. And uh, Thomas, that's why you're on the team, man. You got a great mind for this stuff and a lot of fun to just kind of roll through it now. And we start really diving into what it means to the story going forward, or at least the story that we think's coming. So thank you, yeah. sir. Thanks for coming on board. Appreciate it. Uh, make sure you uh, put yourself over. Tell them uh, what you're doing again and uh, where they can find you. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Thomas Wrestling, Instagram at T Wrestling, and you can find all things podcast related for me over at FTM Podcast Feed on Instagram and Twitter. Do it, my friends. Do it. You can follow me at Ken Knapsack. Go to KenNapsack.com. If you're listening live during this first weekend in May, I have a special book sale going on. You can get, get my uh, book, Why We Love Star Wars, directly from me, and you get it uh, personalized. And for the price of that package, you get everything else in the Star Wars uh, book uh, shop tab on my webpage. That's an exclusive poster from Janine Bryce and a 3D keychain of the book. Get that now until uh, midnight Pacific time on May 4th. That's a deal. If you happen to be watching live, go to KenNapsock.com in the shop tab. If you're listening later, hey, hi, how, how are you? I wrote a Star Wars book. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? All right, everybody, that is it. We'll see you next week on Casterly Talk. <laughs>